Kara Fari, and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. And it's great to be here tonight. I want to thank Ryan for asking me. I don't know. There's Ryan back there for asking me to come out and share tonight. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. And I just, I'm a girl who loves Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm so glad we get to be here sober on a Sunday night. If you're new, I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope that you stay and you find what I found here. And I'll share about that in a little bit. Um, but man, my life is so good today because of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, um, my sobriety date is April 18th of 1994. My home group is the Bigfoot Group in Bellflower, and my sponsor's name is Tina. And I'm so grateful for those three things. I've always had a home group. I've been able to keep that sobriety date, and I've always had a sponsor. And I would not be the person I am today without those things. I'm so grateful for them. Um, you know, today... I. I was thinking uh, during the meeting, oh, and thank you, Anna, for your 10 minutes. You did a great job. But, um, you know, today was a great day. I woke up super early. Our son had a soccer game. He's in high school, but he's in club soccer. I went to those club soccer games, logged on to a GSR meeting on Zoom briefly, um, came home, watched my favorite NFL team play, you know, and uh, talked to our daughter who's going to school in Boston on a FaceTime call and had dinner with my husband, and here I am. You know, and a girl like me getting to do things like that is pretty amazing. You know, I know that I do not have, um, I'm not a normal drinker. I would not be the kind of mom that would wake up at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning and go to her son's soccer game. You know, I'd oversleep, I overshoot the mark with my alcohol, you know, I'd be hungover from the day before, and what a gift. So um, my job today is to share about what I used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And I actually grew up here in Orange County. I grew up in Anaheim Hills. I was raised in a nice home. My parents were married for 42 years. Um, my mom and dad, you know, worked really hard to give my sister and I every opportunity in life to be happy and every opportunity to succeed. You know, and I have to share that with you because when I got sober, I know not everyone has that story. And I wanted any reason to not be here with you. You know, and, uh, and it doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter if we're male, female, what our sexual preference is our socioeconomic background, you know, it ha matters is what happens to us when we take that drink. You know, and as a kid, you know, my dad was an engineer, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad was one of those guys, a pull yourself up by the bootstraps and make it happen kind of guy. He was raised on a ranch. My grandmother worked in the um, orange fields, and his dad died of alcoholism when he was a boy, and my dad, you know, went into the Navy after high school and then went to college to become an engineer, and the message I always got from them is you grow up, you go to school, get good grades, you go to college and do something good with your life. You know, and that was the plan for me. And I accepted that plan. I took it and ran with it. You know, and I wanted to be that girl who wanted to be the best at everything. You know, I wanted to be, have straight A's. I wanted to be the fastest girl on the track team. I wanted to be the captain of the cheer team. I wanted to be the girl with the most Girl Scout badges. You know, just wanted to be the best at everything. And um, during the pandemic, I reread a lot of our AA approved literature. And one of those things was AA comes of age. And Bill talks about that. You know, he talked about how he had to be, you know, top of the class, president of his club, just so he could basically feel equal to you. And I identify with that. You know, I wanted to be the best so I could feel comfortable. And, um, and Anna shared about it really well, you know, getting those things and that's not it. You know, I had a spiritual melody. And, um, you know, growing up, you know, we went to church on Sunday. Father Seamus came to our house for dinner once a month. Um, we were involved in church, and I prayed. And, you know, I mean, you name it, we did it. But on the inside, I was so uncomfortable. 
You know, I was uncomfortable, I was anxious, I was nervous, I was afraid, I was a nail biter, but on the outside, I could put a smile on my face and pretend like everything was fine. You know, and I brought those tools into Alcoholics Anonymous with me. I could be here tonight and be smiling and pretending like everything's fine and be drunk on my way home. You know, I have to be very careful about that. I have to be honest with you guys about who I am and where I'm at. Even if it's ugly, even if it's shameful, I have to just do that here with you. But um, I was uncomfortable and I became a liar before I became a drinker. You know, I remember inviting all these girls to our condo in Palm Springs for spring break. I was in fourth grade and we didn't even have a condo in Palm Springs, you know, but like I wanted to be the girl that couldn't invite her friends to their condo <laughs> for spring break. And um, around that time, my best friend came to school and she had a cast on her leg and everyone was signing it and giving her attention. And I got jealous and I went home that night, started hammering my ankle so I could break my ankle and get a cast and get attention too. And that is not a normal reaction to jealousy, you know, but that's me. That's me before even ever taking a drink. Uncomfortable, just weird. You know, I would grab big chunks of hair, yank it out and braid it and wear it like a bracelet. I have eraser burns from erasing my skin and spraying an aerosol can, you know, to get a burn. I mean, I was just so odd and so uncomfortable. And, um, and so in middle school, I was in seventh grade and I met this boy and he was the kid that was the class clown, the boy who was always in the principal's office. And, um, you know, I was a rule follower and I was attracted to him and he invited me to meet him at a donut store before school one morning. And um, I met him there and it was him and three boys and they had a maroon backpack full of liquor. And we walked behind that donut store and we sat by a dumpster and I took my first drink and it was 80 proof peppermint schnapps and I loved it. I know it was 80 proof peppermint schnapps because that became my first drink of choice. You know, it was like, I loved it. I just, I don't remember feeling better than or prettier than. I just remember feeling comfortable, you know, for the first time in my life. And um, I started drinking every opportunity I could. I was young. I was probably 12 or 13 years old. You know, it's not like you can drink every day. But I would meet these boys before school and, um, you know, and then meet them on like minimum days. We'd lie and tell our parents we were walking to Sizzler and go to someone's house whose parents worked and drank. And then I got rid of those boys and started going out with the high school boys and sneaking out of the house and going to high school keg parties. And I love it. I love alcohol. You know, I love standing by the keg and pounding those beers and beer bonging. And, you know, I had a friend, her name was Sarah, and we were Tara and Sarah, and we'd just do a beer bong. And, and then we'd burp and see who could recite the ABCs the longest while we were burping. You know, I love that. I love the effect produced by alcohol. And um, in a short period of time, you know, when I started middle school, I was like ASB, track team, cheerleader, honor roll, all those things that good girls do. And very quickly, I was not doing any of those things. And my parents sent me to an all-girls Catholic high school in Fullerton. They thought it would fix me. And I remember thinking it would fix me. I remember thinking that was the first time I thought, okay, I'm going to stop partying with those boys. I'm going to go to this school. I'm going to get good grades. And I'm going to go to college. And I went to that school. And a tradition of that school is they pair up a senior girl with a freshman girl. She's your big sister. And I got paired up with a girl that was like me. You know, she loved Led Zeppelin, The Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin in the door. She loved to drink beer and smoke pot. And that's what I loved too. And I would meet her before school and I'd, you know, roll up my plaid uniform skirt and tie off my shirt, you know, pretty high. And we'd split a 40 ounce of beer and go to school and sneak off campus and smoke some pot. And I'm in high school and, you know, going to those high school keg parties. You know, I got my own tap, my keg tap, so I could get into the parties for free, you know, and um, my own beer bong and, I was off and running again. And what happens for me, and I'm sure it happens for you, is once I take that drink, man, that's the most important thing to me. 
and all bets are off. I have no idea where I'm going to end up. You know, I'm just going to drink and drink and drink till I pass out or blackout. That is how I drink. That's how I've always drank. And I'd, you know, be at a party and um, my parents had given me a curfew. You know, they were nice, normal people. And, you know, it'd be like an hour before curfew. And I'd be at a party with different people that I'd left home with. And I think, okay, I'm going to have one more drink and then I'm going to get a ride home. And, you know, that's not the way it works for us, you know, and then it'd be like an, uh, like an hour after curfew. And I think, oh, I'll just go home tomorrow, you know, because my alcoholism became the most important thing. I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I'm self-seeking. You know, I didn't care about my mom who was up praying her rosary beads, wondering whether her daughter was dead or alive or where her daughter was, you know, calling the parents of the girls I'd left home with and founding out, I got into a car with boys they didn't know, you know, and I'd show up the next day and they'd give me some kind of restriction. And I got tired of living by their rules. You know, I'm this like good little Catholic schoolgirl, you know, going to church on Sunday. And, um, and what I started to do was to run away from home. And at first it was okay. You know, my friends would sneak me into their home when their parents went to bed. And, and then, you know, I dropped out of high school and I really, um, I don't know, they, some people talk about crossing an invisible line. And I crossed that line at some point where alcohol became the most important thing in my life. And I became willing to do anything for another drink. You know, and I would, um, I met this guy and he was a crystal meth dealer and his dad was a real estate broker and he had, this guy had access to like this list of homes that were for sale and he could figure out which ones were people weren't living in. And so we'd break into those homes at night and have a place to sleep. And during the, in the morning, he'd say, we got to go do Tara's beer run and we get up and we go to a different grocery store in Orange County every day. And I had this little canvas Greenpeace tote bag. And I'd walk in, you know, this cute little, you know, whatever, 16-year-old girl, and I'd steal my bottle of Jägermeister or my bottle of tequila. You know, there are many times I can remember running out of that store with someone behind me, you know, thinking, let's go, open the, open the hatch so I can jump in. And um, I'd just sit and drink all day long and watch him and his friends skateboard or do whatever they were doing. And at night, we'd drive around nice neighborhoods and look for garages that were open and steal stuff from people's garages or try and break into their homes and pot and off at a pawn shop for more, you know, more, more drugs for him and more booze for me the next day. And, you know, if you would have told me that when I was 12 or 13 and took that first drink, that in like four years, I would be living like that. I wouldn't, I never would have even thought, I didn't know people did things like that, you know, because, but alcohol was the most important thing. And, um, and I ended up um, getting caught urinating in public in a Taco Bell drive-thru. It was in <laughs> Anaheim Hills off Weir Canyon at Savvy Ranch. And they do not like that in the suburbs, you know, and um, I remember getting in the car and the lights came on and I was so drunk, I gave the police officer my real name. And, you know, I've been a missing adolescent for about six months and they took me to my first psychiatric ward. It was CPC Brea, it was a lockdown psychiatric ward. And I remember my parents showing up, they hadn't seen me for about six months and they gave me that look. And I said, I don't have a problem with drinking, it's you. Mom, you're too strict, dad, you work too much, blah, blah, blah. And they stuck me in that place, and, um, and that was the first time I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember an H&I panel came in, and I heard women on that panel sharing about losing their kids, their homes, and their cars, and I could not identify with that, and I immediately shut the door on Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought, I am not like you. And, uh, and I ended up spending Christmas there. My dad came to pick me up and take me home for an eight-hour pass, and on the way home, he stopped by um, close to where we lived and he started to cry and he told me he was sorry I was an alcoholic because he worked so much. And the kind of person this girl is, I accepted his apology and let him believe it was his fault. You know, and, and 
I remember going home for Christmas and he stood at the top of the stairs and he told all our family where I was and how it was his fault. And, you know, and I hated them for putting me in that place, for interrupting my drinking. How dare they, you know? And, um, and while I was in there, my mom had worked out a deal with the principal of my high school and the priest of our parish for me to go back to high school. I could take a few extra classes and graduate with my class on time. And I remember one more time thinking, okay, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to get it together. I'm going to get out of here. I'm not going to party. I'm going to go back to high school, take those classes, and then go to college. And, you know, I am. Um, I got out of there, and within a few, I don't even know, less than a week, I was at the grocery store, and I saw some people that liked to drink like I did, and I was gone again. And my mom, when I got sober, talked about that, just about how humiliating it was for her to have to go back to the principal and the priest and say that I was gone again and they didn't know where I was. And so for the next two and a half years, I would just tear through my parents' life. I would show up on their doorstep, just tore up from the floor up, you know, just a mess. And at first they'd let me into their house. They, you know, let me have a place to sleep. Let me have a shower, give me some food, give me, you know, some clean clothes and a place to stay. And, um, but I would show up and I'd make all these promises. I'm gonna be here when you get home from work. I'm gonna go and get my GED. You know, but I'm the girl that I need to drink. That was my solution for everything. You know, it was my solution to feel normal, to feel functional, to drink away the shame and the guilt of the things that I had done. It was what I had to do. And, you know, and, and around that time, I met this group of people and they loved the Grateful Dead. And, and I, you know, I like the Grateful Dead, like skeletons from the closet. I mean, it's a very generic, you know, Grateful Dead album. But um, they invited me to go to a dead show in Vegas. And, uh, and I went to that dead show and man, I love the parking lot. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was like a psychedelic swamp meet. Anything you wanted was there. People selling Jaeger, you know, Meister shots, kind beer, um, falafel, hair ties, hippie dresses, you know, I mean, you name it, it was there. And those people didn't know me. They weren't giving me the look. And so I started hitchhiking to follow this band that I didn't even really know that well, <laughs> their music, but I love the parking lot. And, um, and I, you know, I, from this point on, I would started drinking from the time I woke up until the time I passed out. And I was blacking out and coming to in places that anybody doesn't want to come to, you know, and I remember one time um, being at a Jerry Garcia band show in Seattle, and I could see the Seattle Space Needle, and I would come to find out I had two seizures that day. And the next day I woke up and I didn't know where I was or who I was with, and I come to find out I was in Eugene, Oregon. And I didn't remember anything between Seattle and Eugene. And I remember being afraid. And I went to the local liquor store and I called home collect and my dad answered and he said, don't call us anymore. We're not your family. We want nothing to do with you. And he hung up on me. My mom had found Al-Anon. Thank goodness. You know, thank goodness. And um, I remember getting off that phone call and I thought, that's harsh, you know, but I had not been a good daughter. The police were showing up at their home looking for me. You know, like I said, I would show up on their doorstep just trying to steal money from them. I broke into their house and stole jewelry that my dead grandmother had left my mom and pawned it off at a pawn shop for more booze. And I am not proud to say that. I hate having to say that, but that is this girl because alcohol is the most important thing. You know, and my mom has passed away and every little tiny thing I have of hers is so valuable to me. And to think that I did that, that I sold that stuff for another drink, I mean, I'm alcoholic, you know? And, um, and so I got off that call and I just kept doing what I do. And I, um, I remember one time I was at a show in Mountain View, California, and 
At a dead show, you walk around in front with your finger in the air asking for a miracle, which is a free ticket into the dead show. And I got a miracle and it should have been like the time of my life, but I've been drinking all day long, you know, overshot the mark. I couldn't even enjoy the show. And the next day we're driving home, um, this nice couple, Bob and Danielle from Utah, they had this orange Westphalia bus and this golden retriever Tovers, and they were giving me and this other guy, Dave, a ride. And we're driving down the California coast and that song by Blind Faith came on, Can't Find My Way Home. And I remember looking out that window and everybody's, there's a buzz in the car. Everyone's excited about how great the show was the night before. And I looked out that window and I just started to cry because I could not imagine my life getting, getting any worse. And that was probably August of 93. And from August of 93 to April of 1994, every single day I would try to stop drinking and fail. I think, okay, today I'm not going to drink. Today I'm going to, you know, put in some job applications and get a job. Today, I'm going to figure out how to take my GED class. Today, I'm going to reach out to my parents. And I'd be drunk by, you know, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning because alcohol was my solution. You know, and, and at that point, you know, I'd already been in two psychiatric wards. I had been in a detox center. I had been in an adolescent rehab. So I kind of knew what AA was, but I didn't want what you had, you know. And um, I met this guy, and his brother was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and his name was Tony. And every time Tony saw me, he smiled and shared about the good life that AA had given him. You know, he went to meetings, he had a job, he had a wife, he had a baby on the way. He was a great example of AA. And he never once pointed the finger at me, but he was an attraction of our program. And um, I started dating his brother. And um, at one point, his brother decided that he was going to get sober. And I thought it was a good idea for him. You know, and he said, well, what about you? You're worse than I am. I said, oh, no, no. I've been to these AA. You know, I don't have a problem with alcohol. I didn't lose. I don't have kids. I didn't lose my car. You know, I didn't have anything to lose. I was a loser. And, um, and he said, well, if you're not going to get sober, then I can't be with you. And so he went off to the rock center, you know, and I said, well, maybe our paths will cross again, you know, and, and I remember going back to this place I was staying in and uh, it had boards up on the windows with signs saying, do not enter, you know, in a vacant house. And, uh, and I thought, okay, I'm going to really stop today. I'm going to really stop. And for the next few weeks, I tried to stop and fail. And, uh, and I just, I could not stop drinking. And so on April 18th of 1994, you know, the night before I had been drinking tequila all night long and I'm in this house and there's no electricity and I fell down some stairs and I was injured, so I had to lay at the bottom of those stairs all night. So on April 18th of 94, I woke up, you know, hungover and injured. And I thought, okay, I'm going to try to get some help. This is not, I knew I had a problem. You know, I didn't know really what alcoholism was. I didn't, you know, really know what AA was. But I, um, I remember limping to the liquor store and calling home collect. And my dad said they could not help me, you know. And, uh, and so I called that guy, Tony, who was sober in AA. And he told me there were some indigent detoxes I could try and get into. And so he gave me the number of the villa, a women's place in Santa Ana. And I called there and they didn't have a bed available. And they gave me the number of this place called Casa del Cerro in Capo Beach. It's no longer there. But I called and this man answered the phone. I have chills when I talk about this. Um, and I told them, you know, I was interested in, in coming and staying there. And he said, we have one bed available. So, but someone else already called and they're interested. So whichever one of you gets here first gets the bed. And I took the, be the bus down there and I got the bed. You know, and, and it's so funny. I'm, uh, I'm so, I'm very lucky. I'm a GSR. And uh, at one of our board meetings, uh, one of the members found out I went to Casa del Cerro. 
And I told him that story about how I got the bed. He says, oh, we told everybody that there was already someone on the way. <laughs> like, well, I got the bed, you know, so I, uh, he tricked me, but I'm so glad he tricked me. And, uh, and I remember this big man answered the door and he looked at me, you know, and I was 84 pounds. I had dreadlocks. I was filthy, dirty. I had, uh, an, I had these nervous tics. Like I would chew out the inside of my cheeks. So it was swollen, like out to here. And I would pick like my, you know, sores all over my body. I'm limping. And, uh, and the man looked at me and he asked if he could give me a hug and he gave me a hug. And he said, we're going to introduce you to Alcoholics Anonymous, kiddo, and Alcoholics Anonymous works. And if you're new today, I think that's the most important thing I can say to you right now is you're in the right place. And if you're an alcoholic like us and Alcoholics Anonymous works and I detoxed there. And um, I recently was telling my husband this, just just remembering that first night of being able to shower, you know, and to be able to sleep in clean sheets and the kindness of people in Alcoholics Anonymous. It just it just blows me away, you know, and and. I stayed there for 10 days and I don't remember a lot about it, but I do know that an H&I panel came in and this woman from that panel came back um, a few days later and she remembered my name and she smiled and said my name and said she was happy to see me. And that was, that had a big impact on me because no one had been happy to see me for a few years. I remember probably six to eight weeks before I got sober, I was, you know, at my parents on their front lawn because um, during my last debacle, my parents had built like this courtyard with a wrought iron fence and a lock to keep me out. And, uh, and it must have been the morning because my dad pulled out of the driveway and he looked at me and he said, Tara, get out of here. Get your SHIT and get out of here. If your mom sees you like this, she's going to just destroy her. Get out of here. And, you know, so people were telling me to get out of here. They weren't welcoming me like that woman from AA, you know, and and uh, I had to leave after 10 days and some people donated some clothing and they packed me some food and gave me the book Alcoholics Anonymous and a meeting directory and said I should go to AA. And I started taking the bus back to that house I'd been staying in and the whole bus ride from Capo Beach to Irvine um, before I had to transfer onto another bus. I just kept thinking like if I go back there, I'm not going to stay sober. And I got off in Irvine. I remember it like it was yesterday. I sat on this little grassy area over off Barranca, that man-made lake. There's like shops and restaurants. And I sat on that little hill and I asked a God of my understanding to help me. I don't exactly remember what I said, but I know I reached out to my higher power. And I remembered um, talking to that guy I had been dating at, um, that was at the Rock Center. And he said they were going to meetings at the Garden Grove Alano Club. And so I went to the payphone and I called the Garden Grove Alano Club and they said, come on down. We have meetings all day. And I took the bus to the Alano Club instead of that house. And I stayed sober, you know, and, and this nice couple let me stay at their house for a few days. And then I went into another program for 28 days. And then after that, I went into sober living in Costa Mesa for six months. And it was in that sober living where they made us find a 12-step program. If you're an addict, you go to NA. If you're alcoholic, you go to AA. And so I started going to AA meetings and um, at the Costa Mesa Alano Club, you know, and and. My first meeting uh, was a women's meeting on Saturday mornings. It was this tough alcoholic broads. You know, it used to have this term, you know, I'm just saying what the term is. I, I don't want to offend anyone, but they used to reference it as the Bikes and Dykes meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, it was like these biker women, you know, they're hardcore. And uh, those women saved my life because they were alcoholic and shared about alcoholism, you know, and and I would go to those meetings and, you know, I'm not a girl who came in here and the obsession to drink was removed from me. It wasn't. I came in here and I wanted to drink more than ever. It was so hard to stay sober. 
You know, it was like, I just was barely hanging on. I didn't have any tools. I didn't have a solution. I was just white knuckling it. And I heard this woman share that because she had worked the 12 steps and because she had a higher power in her life, the obsession to drink had been removed from her. And I heard that and I wanted that. I wanted the obsession removed. And I asked that woman to be my sponsor and her name was Velvet, really nice lady. And she was always so happy, ha ha ha, in the meetings, like so nice. And, and she told me when I asked her, okay, you're gonna, she started circling all these meetings I'm gonna go to and, and you know, you're gonna call me at 6 a.m. and you're gonna do this. And, I, and she kept talking. I kind of got hung up on that 6 a.m. thing, you know? And, and then she, there was a pause. And I said, well, all that sounds funny except calling you at 6 a.m. Like I'm not an early riser. And she looked at me and she kind of got mean and she pointed at me. She said, you'll call me at 6 a.m. or find someone else. And she walked away. And so I called her at 6 a.m. every day for the next few years, you know, and she would say, you know, have you dropped your knees and thank your God for another day of life and another day of sobriety? And I'd say no. And she'd say, well, why don't we do that? Call me back. And then a few months after her telling me to do that every day, I did it, you know, before I called her. And, um, and then it became some other kind of direction. And that woman saved my life. You know, two um, nights a week, we would meet before the meeting and we'd sit in her car and we would read the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And then we read the 12 and 12 together and we'd read it, you know, line by line, page by page. We'd read one page and then we'd stop and she'd talk about what stood out to her and I'd talk about what stood out to me and ask questions. And then we'd go on to the next page. And I'm so grateful that this woman took this time, you know, to explain to our program to me. Because I was like, I was a high school dropout, like, whoa, I was so out there, you know, with my thinking. I, there's no way I would have understood what I was reading. And, um, and she told me I should get a commitment at every meeting I go to. I give back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started to do that. And I'm going to tell you guys, I still do that today. At every meeting I go to, I have a commitment. You know, I get to serve AA. AA doesn't serve me. You know, and... and um, and so I got commitments and she made me become like the greeter at the Hogue Hospital speaker meeting. It was this big meeting, like 300 people on Saturday night at Hogan in Newport. And, and she made me wear pantyhose and, and high heels and a dress and, and smile and ask you how you were. And I didn't care how you were, you know? And, and she'd say, well, that's okay. Just put a smile on your face and act like you do. And, uh, and then she'd say to me, do you remember anybody's name that you met today? And I'd say, yeah, I remember a few people. And she'd say, okay, tonight when you get home in your journal, write down their name and some characteristics about them. So next week when you see them, you'll remember their name. And you can say like, hi, Jim, nice to see you. You know, and then she'd say, did anyone share about anything that's going on in their lives with you? And I'd say, yes. Yeah. She'd say, okay, why don't you call them on Monday and ask them about that? And don't talk about yourself. You know, she taught me how to care about you instead of thinking about myself. And that's what a gift, you know, and, um, and so I got really involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, you know, I'm a girl who probably went to at least two meetings a day for probably a year and a half, like I, um, I mean, it was, I really didn't have anything else going on, it was like AA and work, and um, I'm also a girl who was not invited to participate in holidays with her family for the first almost two years, and so I'm so grateful for AA because I got to go to those marathon meetings at the Lano Club. You know, people would invite me to their house for Thanksgiving and, um, and it was a good deal. But we got to that amends step and, um, and you know, I, I went through step eight with her, you know, told her about the list and we talked about how I was going to make those amends. And she asked me which amends was going to be the hardest. And I said, my parents, and she said, okay, great. You'll do them first. I thought, oh my God, like this woman will not give me a break, you know, and, um, and so we talked about how she wanted me to make the amends. And I sat with my parents. I, it was either a Saturday or a Sunday. And I made a direct and specific amends to them. 
you know, and um, when I asked, you know, if I'd left anything out, what I could do to make it right, my mom had a list ready of things for me to do to make it right, you know, and I, I'm not kidding, like, it was this beautiful cursive writing, you know, she was an Al-Anon, she was ready, she knew it was coming, you know, and, and, uh, and she gave me this list, and my life changed that day, I got in my little car, and I drove down the street, and I parked, and I remember crying, and I wasn't crying because I was upset about what they were asking me to do. I was just try crying because they were giving me the opportunity to make it right. They gave me that opportunity, I'm very lucky. you know. And I did everything on that list, it took a little while, but when I finished it, I told my sponsor I finished and she said, okay, you should call your parents and let them know you finished it. Thank you for the opportunity. And so I did and you know, my dad who was like a man of very, 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 very few words, <laughs> you know, he's an engineer, um, he, called me later that night after we spoke and he said, you know what, babe, your mom and I decided we want to have a family barbecue and we'd love for you to join us this, this weekend. And by doing those things, it allowed me an opportunity to be their daughter again, you know, to be able to be in their lives. And that's one of the greatest, greatest gifts of Alcoholics Anonymous because those are the people that I just dragged through mud. You know, they're, I just, I just work them over and over and over. And um, I ended up, you know, moving out of that sober living, and I ended up marrying that guy that suggested that I get sober. And uh, we weren't married very long. <laughs> I don't even know how long. I'm not good with, with numbers and years. But uh, it was not long. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, unfortunately, he, he drank. And to be honest, I did not read the chapter in our book, Two Wives, you know, in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, about how to be a good wife to somebody who was struggling. And I left that marriage and I wanted to blame it all on him. And it says, you know, we'll know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And within, I don't know, 48 hours, I knew that I had a part in it. I had not been a good, kind, loving wife. I had not been supportive. And so I've been taught that to continue to take a personal inventory. And when I'm wrong, I have to admit it, you know, because I have to be free and clear out there. Otherwise, I can't be uncomfortable. I can't keep secrets. You know, that's um, something I can't do. And so I called him up and I scheduled a time to meet with him sometime within that first week after leaving the marriage. And I remember meeting him at Mimi's Cafe on 17th Street in Tustin. And he showed up and he had been in a bar fight the night before, you know, and and I just kept it on my side of the street. I made amends for my part. And um, and every time we had that moment of silence for the alcoholic who's still suffering, I would say a little prayer for him. And probably about maybe 18 years ago, I was speaking at the St. Jude meeting in Fullerton and I walked through the greeting line. He was in the greeting line sober. And I remember feeling so grateful and happy that he was sober. And that's God and Alcoholics Anonymous working in my life because the Tara that came to you, you know, in 94 was hateful and angry. And I, um, I was not a nice person, you know, and I hope he's still sober today. But I left that marriage and I moved to Laguna Beach. My first sponsor drank and, um, and I was going through that divorce. And I just, you know, I was taught that when things are tough and things are good, more Alcoholics Anonymous works. And so I just started going to meetings in Laguna. I got a new sponsor. I um, was going to meetings every day, really involved in H&I, just saying yes to anything that was asked of me. And, um, you know, and I remember, you know, one night I was at, my home group was the South Coast Speakers Group in Laguna. You guys might know it as Gucci. That's kind of its um, nickname. But uh, that was my home group. And I remember going to that meeting and I had my meeting face on. Everything's great. Everything's great. How are you? And that night I went back to my little cottage in, in the canyon and I wanted to drink. And I didn't want to call my sponsor and I didn't want to call my friends. I wanted to drink. And I remember uh, getting on my knees and asking a God of my understanding to please help me stay sober. And I was able to stay sober that night. 
And I'm so grateful that I had taken, I think I was probably six years sober at that time, you know, taken those years to try to develop a relationship with a power greater than me. You know, it says there will come a time when we will have no mental defense against the first drink. And that defense has to come from a power greater than us, right? And that was my experience. And, um, and so I just kept coasting through. I, you know, I started dating and became obsessed with finding a new husband. You know, I'd go out with these AA guys and I'd sit across from him and think, you're the one. And he'd be like, I'm not the one. I'm like, yes, you are. You know, <laughs> I was crazy. And, um, <laughs> and uh, one day I was sitting in my cubicle at work and it occurred to me that if all I ever got to be was Tara, sober member of AA, then that was enough for me. And I felt it, you know, I just felt it in here. And that obsession to find a husband left me. And later that year, I was at the powwow, and I met my husband, Chris. And um, we've been married for, uh, gosh, 20 years. We've been together for 22 years. And, uh, and he's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. We love AA. We put AA first in our lives. We have to. Because if we don't, we are both alcoholic. If we don't, the life that we have today is not going to be what it is today. You know, and, and we have had the great privilege of having two children. We have a 17-year-old son and we have an 18-year-old daughter. And those kids have never seen us drink. They've seen me act like a lunatic. <laughs> you know, I always want to be honest. I am not perfect. I don't, I'm not sober and perfect at all. You know, I have still have a lot of defects of character. I'm a girl who goes to a lot of meetings. I, I pray. I do all these things. You know, I, I work on my defects of character. But, um, but overall, I think we've done a pretty good job raising our kids. And, you know, I, I sometimes, when I look at our kids, they're nothing like me, thank God, yet, you know, knock on wood. But, um, you know, they're kind and they're empathetic and they love to be of service. Like during the summer, they both decided they wanted to go volunteer at Sarah's Pantry in Mission Viejo at the food bank just on their own. I thought, oh my gosh, no one's even telling them to do this, you know, and, and, uh, and they're really nice and helpful. And I know that's because of Alcoholics Anonymous, because of the example we set in our home, because of the example that you guys set when they're around you. You know, they see that and it has this kind of trickle down effect it has in our kids' lives. But, um, but we've done that. You know, I, like I told you, when I got sober, I was a high school dropout and I never, ever wanted to be a high school dropout. Ever since I can remember, I always wanted to be a doctor. I am not a doctor, but um, from like little, little girl, that was what I wanted to be. And, um, and I came to you and I did some things. I learned how to be responsible, you know, and I started going to school at first, you know, in the beginning of year sober, I would show up and never go back and get an F or a withdrawal or whatever it's called. And, um, it took me 17 years to get a four-year degree. Okay. I'm like, not, I'm not quick, a quick study, but, um, but I did it. You know, I just would take one class every semester and working full time and going to AA, you know, I. I was always taught that, you know, you can go to school, but AA still has to come first. You know, it has to come first. And, um, and so I was able to do that because you taught me how to do that. You taught me how to show up. You taught me how to, you know, follow direction, how to do what the teacher was telling me to do, turn in my assignments on time, you know, be helpful in group discussions with other um, peers. And, and that was great. And, and you know, I, um, my mom had passed away before I graduated from college, but my dad was still alive. And it was like a little bit of an amends, thank you. Because my dad had worked so hard to give me that opportunity. And I just drank that opportunity away, you know? And, and he was so happy that day. And, you know, I decided to complicate my life a little more and go on for more school. And I commuted from Dana Point to Loma Linda five days a week for almost three years with little kids at home. And, 
And I still managed to go from Dana Point to Loma Linda to Bellflower Big Book Group back to Dana Point, you know, like two days a week and going to the other meetings. And it was really hard. Um, but, you know, what was cool is that I had been given the great opportunity of sponsoring some women. So we had call time. So those women's talk, they talked my ear off, you know, all the way to school and then all the way home. You know, it's like they had my attention for an hour and a half each way. And, uh, and it was a good deal. And, you know, today I have a profession where I get to serve. I work with geriatrics and, um, you know, with people with physical disability, dementia, Alzheimer's. And it's just so cool that a girl like me gets to bring this, this spirit of love and service that we learn here into my profession. But, um, you know, life on life's terms happens. And a number of years ago, I was at my Monday night home group meeting. I was the birthday girl. I had a new dress on. My husband and I had had a great dinner. Life was perfect, you know, and, and I announced birthdays and stepped off the podium and my husband was waiting for me. He said, we got to go. Your mom was in an accident. I said, okay, we'll go in a minute. He said, no, we need to go now. And on the way from the meeting hall to the car, I called my dad and my dad said that my mom had been hit by a car crossing the street and she wasn't going to make it. And my life changed that day. You know, I remember getting in the car and my husband um, was driving. My parents had bought a retirement home in Temecula. They were so excited. And we're driving out to Temecula and I did some things. You know, I'm still a girl who sometimes doesn't, my first go-to isn't to ask for help. You know, but I called my sponsor immediately. I called my two best friends in AA and said, this is what's going on. I don't know what I'm going to need, but I think I'm probably going to need a little help here. And um, we got to the hospital, you know, and on the way there, I also remember... Um, having this, this idea, this thought that my experience would benefit others, you know, cause that's what so much of AA is, is experience, you know? And, and from that day to this, I, I know a lot of people who've lost their moms and until you go through it, you don't really know, you don't get it, you know, what it feels like, but I do. And what a great way to serve, you know? And, and I also remember feeling compassion for the person that hit and killed my mom. And I would come to find out it was a 17 year old boy. He had just washed his car. There was water on his windshield. He didn't see my mom. And having that compassion, that is God and Alcoholics Anonymous working in my life because I was a very hateful person when I came to you. And I got to go there and hold my mom's hand when they took her off of the life support machine. And you know what, you guys, when my mom died, we were, we were good because of AA. My mom and dad loved Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? They loved it because you gave me back to them. You did. You allowed me to become a good daughter. You allowed me to show up for them, you know? And and, you know, my dad, a few years ago, I guess four years ago, he was diagnosed with stage four bone cancer. And I knew what to do, you know, because I'd been sitting in these rooms. I heard other sober people share about going through those experiences and how they got through it, what they did. And I got to go and be my dad's cheerleader. I didn't have to make it about me. Like, I'm so sad you're dying. It was about him. You know, I would show up and take him to chemo. And after we'd go to, you know, Circle K, and I'd get him whatever he wanted, you know, and, and, uh, and he was, we were also right when my dad passed because of God and Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, and these are the people that I just dragged through the mud, you know, and, uh, and I'm so grateful for that. You know, and I want to share, I only have a few minutes left, um, like five minutes maybe. So, you know, I, I think I probably said, if you're new, that I hope you find what I found here. And it's like, well, what have you found here? You know, I think it's easy to confuse um, what we find here is like thinking it's like going back to school or getting the husband or having the kids. And that's all great, but that's not what I found here. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous, first and foremost, what I found here is a relationship with a higher power that I call God that has saved me. You know, I never feel alone. 
And uh, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, I've also found here a relationship with a woman. It's my sponsor, Tina. Not, not a personal relationship, but she's my sponsor, that kind of relationship. And, um, and it's a woman that I admire and respect. I still call her regularly. I see her regularly. And when I take something to her for her direction, I turn my will and my life over to her and I just do what she tells me to do. And it served me very well all these years. You know, I don't debate. I admire and respect her. I don't confuse my relationship with her. She's not my buddy. She's my sponsor. And I have a lot of respect for her. You know, I've also found here um, a host of friends who are more than friends. They're my family. You know, I have friends that, thank you, that I could call at 3 a.m. on a Wednesday night. And I know that they would drive from Long Beach to Dana Point to help me. And I would do the same for them. And, you know, um, in fact, one of my best friends um, adopted our niece because my sister-in-law couldn't take care of her. Like, they are our family. You know, and I've also found here an ability to stay calm even when I'm in the eye of the storm because life on life's terms happens. It's not always going to be easy. Everything's not always going to be, you know, the way we want it to be. But um, I think it's by coming in here and sitting and listening to you guys and hearing how you get through it that when I've had to go through it, you know, it's been my turn. It's like I already know the solution. I know who I can talk to about it. You know, I've also, you know, found here an ability to be useful. I mean, wow, a girl like me, people were like, get out of here, you know, leave us alone. And you taught me how to be useful, you know, by getting a commitment here, by learning how to be one among many, you know, it taught me how to carry those into my work life, my school life, you know, to learn how to be a team player. I've learned so much in AA. And, you know, I, I'm going to end with this. I, um, a few years, oh, well, a number of years ago, I used to take our kids to the Barnes and Noble story time hour in Aliso Viejo. And they would have a puppet show and our kids loved it. And I put them in the double stroller and I'd walk around Barnes and Noble and look at books. And on this um, New York Times bestseller shelf was this book for a long time. It was titled A Purpose Driven Life. And um, I haven't read it. I've heard it's very good. But on the cover, you know, it would say however many millions of copies were sold. And I thought, oh, my goodness, like it occurred to me how lucky I am to know what my purpose is, because there were millions of people that bought that book to try to figure out a purpose. You know, we come here, we stay sober, we take the steps, you know, we apply these traditions into our life. We say yes when we're asked to do something in Alcoholics Anonymous, and we get to stay sober and help carry the message of the alcoholic who still suffer. People like us to have a purpose like this. It's amazing. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. There's absolutely not one single thing that anyone could tell me tonight that would change my mind. This program works. We're glad you're here. And if you're new, please don't leave tonight without a sponsor. There are a lot of good people in this room, and we would love to help you. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be nervous. It would be, you would be doing us a favor by asking us, you know, for us to be able to share our experience, strength, and hope. So thank you so much for my sobriety. Let's thank our speaker, Tara, again. Woo!